I went to Michigan. I didn't know anybody, but he was traveling a lot. So within nine months of marrying this man, I'm going out to bars, picking up strangers and getting marijuana and going home with them. And then I have this great job at Eastern Michigan University, and I had this PhD from Stanford. And here I had these two polarities fighting. And I finally called a psychologist and went in. I said, what is wrong with this? What is wrong? Something's got to be wrong. He said, you're in the early stages of alcoholism, and it's in your family, given what you've told me, and it will probably only progress. But if you think you don't have a problem, then try having one drink, maybe even two, but don't go over two and see if you can do that. I did that experiment. And what I learned, it took me six months and thanks God I survived it because sometimes I'd have one or two and stop. Other times I'd have three, four, five, close the bar, find the drugs, find the man. And I never could predict whether it would be only two or all the way to drunk driving. In the early 80s, they were not stopping people, but my God, I was doing that. So finally, I I admitted that I did have a problem. I couldn't stop on my own. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 201. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last eight years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. Social norms are so powerful, and that's why you need to find a new tribe for this life-changing journey. Because your family tribe will tell you to just cut down a bit, and your drinking buddy tribe will tell you not to be so boring. Whereas, Tribe Sober will connect you with other people on the same path. Other people who will encourage and inspire you to keep going. Other people who understand the struggle. Other people who have been exactly where you are now. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle and many of our members are already thriving in their sobriety and inspiring others. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. That's when Tribe Sober entered my life. 
<laughs> that was my first month with Tribe Sober, and it was a complete revelation to me. I joined the WhatsApp group, which was instantly a connection with people all over the world, which was phenomenal. You know, in that time, it was a light in the darkness, and it was a whole bunch of people going through something similar. Quite, quite amazing and extraordinary. And not only that, there was this wonderful, you guys have this beautiful sober tracker that you cross off your alcohol three days, you know, as you go along, which also was just, it came at exactly the right time for me. I was kind of stranded in nowhere and doing, starting to do some doodles and the connection somehow between putting pen to paper and visually seeing that you were making progress through July, not drinking, plus the support of that Tribe Sober group, it was extraordinary. And it was definitely, it set me on the path. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. You may also be interested in our five-day sobriety boot camp. We've been running these for a couple of years now and people have been getting great results. This boot camp is actually our seventh and takes place from the 12th to the 16th of February and it's absolutely free. So if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, then the boot camp starts on Monday, so you're just in time. Bootcamp content is five days of tasks, training and connection in a private Facebook group. The most common question we get asked about Bootcamp is, can my friends see that I'm on this group? Well, the answer is a big fat no. The only way your Facebook friends will see that you're in this group is if they are in the group as well. So just go to tribesober.com, get the info and sign up for our free boot camp. My guest this week is Gigi Longer. She's a presenter, a retreat leader and an author of two books to help overcome negative thinking. She holds a PhD from Stanford, has 37 years of sobriety and is also in recovery from falling in love with men called Arthur. I began our conversation by asking Gigi to introduce herself. I live in southwest Florida near Naples and I'm retired. I used to be uh, a professor at Eastern Michigan University in the College of Education and my areas of specialty were helping teachers improve their teaching and improve the students learning. So I spent 30 years doing that. I was a teacher before that. And my personal story, we'll probably get into a little more because that's yeah. related to my adventures earlier <laughs> in my life. <laughs> okay, let's get into those adventures, shall we, Gigi? I think uh, to take you right, but there, there was some alcoholism in your family, am I correct? Yes, yeah. My father was at the bar a lot of nights. It was the 50s, and so it was expected, and his job involved a lot of horse people who were into horses, and it, that, that's a drinking crowd, too. And my mom had four children, and the four of us would be waiting with mom at home at night, 
waiting for that crunch of the tires on the gravel for dad to come home and not knowing if he would or not. So mom was depressed a lot and I was the youngest of four. So by the time I came along, it had accelerated and she would lie on her bed and read and send us out to get dinner or something. (laughs) And witnessing them arguing when they both drank at the same time, which gratefully they stopped doing. She stopped drinking just so that it wouldn't get that bad. (laughs) But witnessing those scenes when I was really little, I had a very shaky sense of any kind of emotional foundation in that family. Yeah. Yeah. And when did you start drinking? Did did you start drinking in your teenage years or was it a little Uh, later? It was later. I had a drink here or there. I had a couple of episodes, one in college where I drank so much I went home with my boyfriend's fraternity brother. And that was like a red flag. But those occasions were pretty rare. Uh, And then in my first marriage, I got drunk at a party with all these military people, and that was a little embarrassing. But it was occasional. And what I discovered was that I preferred marijuana, which I discovered in the early 70s. And that it, it, it came along as a result of my first marriage falling apart because I was not capable of handling having two stepchildren who came to live with us a year after we'd been married and they were living with their mother, but we had no idea they'd be coming to live with us. And at 23, I was a stepmother. It was very difficult and I couldn't handle it. So when I left after a year, we were all in counseling and actually the counselor said, why can't you leave? So I think the counselor knew that my husband at that time, who he'd worked with him quite a bit, I think he knew that my husband was gay and was working his way through that. So in a way, I felt like I had kind of permission, but I was so devastated to crash and burn after growing up with this image of happily married, picket fence, and then to have this crash down that's when I discovered marijuana was a wonderful medication yeah. for the f- emotional pain. Yeah. At 24 or 25, when I really discovered and fell in love with marijuana, it was really helpful. So you used it to numb your feelings. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was just and looking at your late, latest book, actually. I was reading the, the chapter about addiction, and you said that we have to decide to either numb our feelings or grow. And you were at the numbing your feelings stage back then, weren't you? Yes. Because we don't and know any was, better, do we, until we open our eyes and our hearts? Yeah. You're absolutely right, until it gets to be too painful. Yeah. And my drug of choice at that time was romance. Yeah. And immediate romance. So I fell in love right away with someone else. We got married on paper so that I could travel with him. And that lasted four years. And then we dissolved it. By then I was really enjoying kind of a wild lifestyle because he traveled a lot and I had little things going on the side and my CD life. And we got to live in these fabulous places, Hawaii, Germany, Brazil. And 
I would wake up with nothing important to do because it was a short-term location. And so I would get high. And then I kept pinching myself. You're living in Hawaii. Why aren't you happy? And I didn't have any idea. I didn't know about addiction or any of that. This was early 70s, mid 70s. Yeah. 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 Uh, And when did your academic career get started then? After that marriage, at the end of it, I met a man that I didn't marry. And by the way, the first husband's name was Arthur. The second husband's name was Arthur. And the guy I didn't marry but lived with for a few years was William Arthur. (laughs) Crazy. So That was obviously one of your criteria. (laughs) Yeah, right. So he seemed to have his act together and he had a doctorate. And so he coached me how to apply because I was very interested. I'd done a master's in education. I was very interested in what helps teachers get better and was there research on this and so on. I found a person at Stanford who was doing that sort of research and wrote my application letter saying I wanted to help with that. And then I tested very well on the GRE So they let me in to a PhD program in the psychology of education at Stanford. And I began in 1997. And this William Arthur went there with me. And that didn't last too long. I What, the PhD or the marriage? (laughs) Oh, it wasn't a marriage, but living together with him. The PhD, I actually stuck with it. (laughs) However... All these smart people in my program, there were 15 of us, and half of us were very practical. Gee, I wonder what helps teachers get better, and can we study it? And the other half were like these whiz kids who were 19 years old and been admitted to a PhD program from Brown University. (laughs) Anyway, what did I do to handle the stress? Found someone who grew his own marijuana. (laughs) And guess what his middle name was? We ended up living together, (laughs) Arthur. So the whole four years, in the evenings, I went to my Cheers bar and I learned I could drink at least six beers without being too hungover the next day. And then we would get home and get high on marijuana. And that's how I got through and moved in with him eventually. My using buddy. Yeah. And I made it through. I finished the program in, in 1982 but I knew my life was really seedy. By that time, I was sleeping around on him and really feeling awful about the state of my life and almost 35 thinking, okay, if I wanna have a family. A man came along who wasn't much older than I was, who didn't have Arthur in his name, who lived in Michigan. (laughs) And of course we fell in love right away, another romantic addiction and I moved to Michigan we so, married uh, can I ask you, Gigi, knowing what yep. you know about AA and the, the 12 steps and everything, do you think you were a love addict as well as um, oh, yes. everything yes. else? Yeah. Yes. And once I got sober, I did go, they called it Women Who Love Too Much yeah. in yeah. those days. Yeah, there's a book, isn't there, called that? Yes. Yeah. It's very good, actually. I went to Michigan. I didn't know anybody, but he was traveling a lot. So within nine months of marrying this man... I'm going out to bars, picking up strangers and getting marijuana and going home with them. 
And then I have this great job at Eastern Michigan University, and I had this PhD from Stanford, and here I had these two polarities fighting. And I finally called a psychologist and went and I said, what is wrong with this? What is wrong? Something's got to be wrong. He said, you're in the early stages of alcoholism, and it's in your family, given what you've told me, and it will probably only progress. But if you think you don't have a problem, then try having one drink, maybe even two, but don't go over two, and see if you can do that. I did that experiment, and what I learned, it took me six months, and thanks God I survived it, because sometimes I'd have one or two and stop. Other times I'd have three, four, five, close the bar, find the drugs, find the man. And I never could predict whether it would be only two or all the way to drunk driving. In the early 80s, they were not stopping people. But my God, I was doing that. So finally, I I admitted that I did have a problem. I couldn't stop on my own. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And and I've tried to moderate and, and so have many of our members However much you try and control it, it, it'll always sneak through, won't it? I could keep going two, three weeks being sensible, and then one night I would just drink to blackout. You just can't manage it every time, can you? There's always a few times when that two-drink rule falls apart. <laughs> and it was a relief to have my psychologist, and then he did suggest that I go to a 12-step program. And in 1986, that was probably the only game in town. Yeah, sure. So he explained to me that this is an allergy of the body. It sets up a craving once you put one drink in it. And it's an obsession of the mind to find that escape and to get that sweet spot that we occasionally got. And once I realized it wasn't a moral failing, and that it ran in my family. And then going to meetings, it helped too. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So what age were you? Late 30s by then when you started at AA? 38, yeah. okay. Uh-huh. And did I see that you still go to meetings? Yes, okay. yes. I have not had to have a drink or drug since. That even includes something like Xanax or something mm. that immediately makes your emotions better. Even a muscle relaxant like Flexeril, if I'm really tied up with my joints because I had a lot of problems, I would only take that right before bed and not if I was feeling emotionally vulnerable. It's like nothing that's mind-altering, nothing that will soothe the discomfort. The beauty is that I did hate emotional discomfort. I hated the shame of what I had been doing. So I was really motivated. Ha, didn't like the God language, didn't like other women. I had always hung out with men, knew how to pull the strings. So it was pretty daunting going to meetings. And mostly at first, there were a lot of men, but people suggested that I might benefit from a meeting with all women. 
so I started going to one of those. I went two or three times a week. It took me six months to get a sponsor because I didn't feel that I deserved anyone's attention. I was so afraid. I knew how to manipulate men, but I had to be completely straight with a woman and just say, can you help me? That was really hard to do. But eventually all those other women would talk about their sponsors and how they were able to call them and get support. And I I thought, oh, I want one of those. (laughs) And I found the perfect person for me at that stage, which was really fabulous. Fantastic. And I'm sure you're a sponsor now yourself. Right, right. Yeah. 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 Nice. So how was your first year of sobriety, Gigi? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Did you have any relapses? I have not had to have a relapse. I'm so grateful. I guess so much of the comfort and stress release that I was getting from the alcohol and drugs and promiscuity I was finding after I put both feet into the middle of the circle, which took six months, but I didn't have any drinks for that first six months. I had some promiscuous behavior, but I didn't have a drink. And I stayed in that third marriage. For the first time, I didn't say, I'm leaving, grab my skis, grab my saddle and leave. I stayed in that marriage and we went to therapy with my therapist. He didn't, my third husband didn't attend a lot. He was traveling and so on. But anyway, so uh, the first thing I did was I didn't run away. I went to three meetings a week for the first six months. I stayed going to therapy. I didn't drink. Was it hard not to drink? I don't remember thinking, oh, I absolutely have to have a drink. Although I remember the emotional pain, and this is what my sisters in sobriety walked me through, was that the emotional pain didn't require a drink. I could call somebody. I could read something. I didn't meditate at that time. I wasn't open to spirituality. All I knew was that if I could get the comfort of those women, I could get through. Yeah, so the connection was helping there. I was interested when you said that uh, after a year of recovery, you decided that you had a thinking problem. What brought you (laughs) to that decision? Yeah. Two pieces. I was doing the steps. So I was on steps four, five, six, seven. And I realized that I had this voice in my head that was constantly telling me nasty things about myself. And, And actually, my therapist had identified that too. In the 80s, there was a book out by David Burns, and it was all about cognitive Hmm. restructuring, changing the negative thinking. So I was working on that with my therapist. I was aware of it in the fourth and fifth step, and I knew it was coming from my mind. Somehow I thought, I can retrain my mind. So I got a self-hypnosis tape. So I'd listen to this tape every night before I went to bed. (laughs) It was really helpful. But I have to say that it was when I got to the second layer, we recover in layers. That's when I started going to adult children of alcoholics meetings. It might have been in the first year that I went to women who love too much, Mm -hmm. which is 
really helpful. But I realized right away that I had that false belief that if I don't have a man loving me, I'm no one. And I had to detox from that obsession. I worked on that. And I also realized that was a whispered lie. So this was early sobriety. And I stayed in therapy and I started identifying all these ways that my limited thinking had convinced me I was no good and I was a loser. The other thing that was going on was I had already been studying with my grad school mentor, A Course in Miracles. She was a person who was studying this. It's a spiritual path that teaches us how to be more in a love space rather than a fear place. And she studied it. She told me a little bit about it. And then she sent me a book. And then my first sponsor was interested in A Course in Miracles, interestingly, because in the early 80s, mid 80s, that was not mainstream. Anyway, then someone took me to a unity church, not Unitarian, but unity. And they would talk about A Course in Miracles. And the guy who was the minister was in recovery. And when he spoke about spiritual things, I didn't go, it, it made sense to me. So I would say that was the other piece, because A Course in Miracles very much teaches that our ego, our fear-based self, feeds us all these habitual negative messages, but they're just habitual and we can change them. And especially with some spiritual help, we can change them. So I started cozying up to some source of spiritual, but it was a female uh, spiritual source. Mm. Yeah, I like the way you say that we recover in layers because that's when you were doing the work and that's why the the recovery was happening. Yeah, and Janet, I want to add a thing about that, that I think sometimes women don't, maybe men too, but don't go into therapy or don't want to go to a meeting or don't want to get sober because we, and I was like this, I felt like all this pain and nastiness was deep inside of me. And if I went somewhere like therapy or meeting and got honest, it would be like ripping the band-aid off and everything would come gushing out and I think the beauty of knowing that there are layers and that they come in a manageable pace is really important Mm -hmm. for people who are teetering on the edge yeah and it can come out gradually and and be healed gradually yeah exactly and I think talking about that first year of sobriety again I think a lot of people get that feeling I'm sober now, I can do this, but now what? My life hasn't really changed much apart from a bit less partying, but they they need something else, don't they? And that's when I guess we start doing the work. But there's a definite change, isn't there? In my experience, it's about six months focusing on that habit, the habit change, and then it's looking at our lives, isn't it? Reconfiguring our lives. Who are we and what do we really want? Exactly. And we're surrounded by people who are farther down the road than we are. And that's where the inspiration comes from, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And you can call it serendipity, higher power, Buddha, love, loving energy, whatever that thing that's yeah. bigger than our fear is that we can connect with other women 
feeling their strength, feeling their love, feeling their support. I could believe that there was something going on. Yeah, I yeah. didn't have to name it, but I could rely on that same thing. And I could do the exact same things they were doing. And I could begin to get the same healing, which I never thought was possible. Yeah, that I yeah. could heal from all that awful stuff inside of me. Yeah, there's something about vulnerability, isn't it? And when we start being vulnerable and brave, then the healing can start. Because, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was exactly the same. I kept it all buttoned up. I remember yeah. thinking when I was really getting bad with my drinking that I thought, I've got myself into this mess and now I've got to get myself out of it and nobody need know and I'm going to do it on my own. And of course, that's absolutely hopeless and got me nowhere yeah. apart from another decade of going around in circles. You mentioned the vulnerability and the strength and the courage. I just want to say that uh, you don't need those before you seek help. Yeah. You, you need the self-honesty to say the way I've been running my life is not working. Yeah. And I don't think it's ever going to work. Yeah. There has to be another way. Yeah. So just that little willingness to go to a therapist or to meet with a life coach or to somehow try something different yeah. is the key. Yeah, just reaching out for help. And I often think that is the hardest bit. And then Absolutely. once you've done that and once you've found A or some other community, then it takes over. There's a momentum that takes place and you've got support and community, which is everything. Just that feeling, I still remember the first time I was in a group and uh, just the realization that it wasn't just me. <laughs> exactly. Because let's look at you, you're a college professor. I was an executive, so to the outside world, we were just this, uh, these successful women that had our act together and if only they knew. And, <laughs> and then you, you get sober and for me, the, the beauty of it has been that I've got all this energy now that I was using to keep all the balls in the air when I was drinking and now I've got that energy to use in something so much more positive it's an amazing process I love the recovery community I just love the way that we can we talk to people to each other and we get each other because we, we've all been to the same place and come back exactly. from it yeah so I wanted to ask you about your writing. Was that part of your recovery? Your first book was called 50 Ways to Worry Less, wasn't it? Are you somebody yes. that journals a lot? And was it part of your recovery, that book? It came, I don't know, after 30 years of recovery, 25 maybe, mm -hmm. 20. I had retired from my job. So you had a bit years. of time to, to write a book. Yeah. yeah. And I had been involved with teams of people who wrote textbooks. So I had been through the drill. But I wasn't planning on writing a book. Oh, and by the way, I should say, at the end of my first year sober, with the help of my therapist, I did leave the third marriage and lived on my own for the first time ever. Well done. And then <laughs> I was like, oh, what kinds of things do I like? Yes. I don't even know. I always moved in. <laughs> and then after that year, I met a man, and I took two-plus years to get to know him, stayed in therapy, stayed in recovery, and we got married. We just last week had our 34th wedding anniversary. Wow. Oh. Anyway, that's the end of that story about and relationships. he's not called Arthur. 
No, he's not called Arthur. He's a wonderful guy. <laughs> so you asked about the book. I started writing the book in maybe 2000. I had been journaling. I'm not a big journaler, but I had done a really wonderful thing. The artist's Oh, way. the artist's way. Julia Cameron, yeah. Yeah, She's and fabulous. it's a shame that it's got the word artist in it because mm. it's really for discovering our authentic self. It and should expressing. be called morning pages. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I started doing that writing. But whenever I was working through something really hard, I had um, two frozen shoulders, couldn't wash my hair. I had workaholism where I was addicted to work and overdoing perfectionism. It hurt my back that had all kinds of problems with my back, professional jealousies. I was on a plane after visiting my mother. I had always felt estranged from her, but over the years, she grew more frail and I healed more. And so on the airplane home, I was reflecting on how, what a miracle it was that I could feel loving toward her with no sense of blockage or resentment or anything. And then I thought, why couldn't other people learn some of this stuff? Because it wasn't just 12-step stuff I had learned. I had embarked on energy healing, Reiki, cranial sacral, tapping, those energetic things. And then I had used a lot of cognitive restructuring and then the spiritual kinds of tools. My husband said, you should write down what I hear you telling your sponsees. <laughs> so... 2014, I had a draft. I was retired, but I had an education book that I was co-authoring that I had a contract for, so I had to do that. It wasn't until 2016-17 that I had a draft that I could send to an editor. That book came out in 2018, and it really does contain 50 ways. <laughs> to worry less. Yeah, so the, the spiritual tools, the energetic tools, and the cognitive tools. And then because I'm a teacher and a teacher of teachers, I tell the story of how my life was really painful. Like halfway through writing the book, my husband started drinking again. I had met him in AA. Okay, something happens in my life. I tell that little story and then how I discovered the tools that helped me. And then I describe in one paragraph, the research on that tool, because it's not just you should do this. Yeah. And then I give a little script or a little lesson. Here's how you can do it. Because I always got frustrated with self-help books that said, hey, do this, but they never tell you exactly how. So quite often, like for the tapping, you can't teach that in a short space. So I sent them to the website or Radical Forgiveness, which is a transformational thing. That's a website, but I offer an example, and the author of the book approved it. Byron Katie's The Work. Yeah. Fabulous thing. People in recovery might have heard about turnarounds, or is it true, but how to actually do it. I had gone to two days of training with her, so I created an example for the book, and she approved it. So I thought, I want to offer the world all these tools in a manageable, easy-to-learn way. And so I love that book and people love it too. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. I'm yeah. working yeah. my way through it now. <laughs> Who is that book for? Is it for people in recovery or is it for yeah. everybody? 
Who's your audience? My gut has been so clear that I did not want to write only for people in recovery. Yeah. Because I think the tools are so applicable for people. So I, I entitled it that way. Recovery is not in the title. However, most of the people who reviewed it and recommended it are people who are big names in the recovery community. Yeah. And most of the people who read it are in recovery. I do have one uh, friend. She's a therapist, and she uses the book as a reference tool. So instead of having to teach someone, here's how you do the golden key, she just says, here it is on page X. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Let's talk about the latest book. That's called Love More Now. So talk to us about that one. Yes. So the subtitle is Facing Life's Challenges with an Open Heart. Mm. I think one thing about the cognitive intellectual approach, which is, I think, a piece of the puzzle, is that this aspect of loving energy, which I call it in that book, which I think is an essential piece of life meaning. The intellect isn't the only tool that's going to help us. I hadn't planned on writing a second book. And then I realized that this idea of a metaphor for healing is our heart closing. Yeah. So the false beliefs do that, right? Yeah. Being highly sensitive does it. I'm a weirdo in this world. So many things can cause us to close our heart. And, and then as we heal, we can open and that's healing those layers, but it's also opening our hearts to ourselves, to that source of wisdom and love and to other people. So the metaphor for opening our hearts, I wanted to use to help people get the idea that whether you're in recovery or not, there's a lot of things that we're closing our hearts with. There are stories in this one, one woman who's caring for her elderly mother and feels like she's the only one. And she was a caretaker in her family of origin. So she feels painted in a corner and ticked off at her sister because she's not helping enough and working full time and getting exhausted. And she's closed her heart and painted herself in a corner. And then I illustrate how she begins to open her heart and um, finally find the peace to allow that situation to be and take good care of herself and connect with her sister. Yeah. It's more about those life situations that come along. A child who's using drugs or alcohol or in a bad relationship, worry about loved ones, certainly health and aging. How do we keep our hearts open? And if anyone's looking for a way to just try to open themselves to the willingness to get sober or find a better way of living, I highly recommend any kind of meditation 
I took the eight-week mindfulness meditation course with John Kabat-Zinn's people, but you can easily do the Insight Timer. That's a big piece of this book, too, because we sink down and find our authentic self and our true heart when we can get still. But I don't get still very well, and a lot of people don't either. So the guided meditations that guide me yeah. into a relaxed state and so on, I have found to be extremely helpful. So if anyone just says, I'm not ready for a big step, but I'll take a little step, hmm. go to Insight Timer, find one of the free meditations <laughs> and try it. Yeah, um, that that's a great tip, Gigi. Mm-hmm. How can people find your books? They're both on Amazon. Okay. The first book, I have a bunch of print copies. So what I do is sell them for less and I autograph them and mail them free. So that would be on com. So my website has a purchase button and you can get the 50 ways to worry less now. From me in print, that's less than buying it on Amazon. The ebook, of course, is available on Amazon. If you're really stretched for money, I would be happy to send the PDF of either book to somebody who requests. And the easiest email for me is glanger2202 at gmail. Okay. And any of the listeners could email me and ask me for resources. Okay. I'll put all that in the show notes. And that's very kind of you to offer PDFs. Last question, really. If someone's listening to this and they're way back where you were all those years ago, looking for your Arthur's in the bars. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Arthur's in the bars. What can they do? Where should they start? Because we know in our hearts, don't we, that we've got to make a change, but often we've no idea where to start. So you've given that excellent tip about insight timer and meditation. What else would you say? I think the easiest thing to do is to find a therapist or a life coach who knows about addiction. Yeah. I would make sure they understand alcoholism and addiction and um, family dysfunction. Um, Walking into a meeting is the obvious choice. The podcasts where there are speakers sharing this podcast, I see that you have a group and people who are listening might be willing to take the plunge and work with you. Hmm? We can't do it alone. And we have to be honest with ourselves that we're making ourselves miserable and we can't keep doing the same thing. Thank you so much for your insight, Gigi. Let's pull out some key points. Gigi grew up in a family affected by alcoholism, witnessing her father's frequent drinking and arguments with her mother. Gigi herself initially turned to occasional drinking, but in fact preferred marijuana to cope with emotional pain, particularly after her first marriage ended. She pursued a career in education, specialising in helping teachers to improve teaching and students' learning. She found herself using romantic relationships as a means of escape and self-medication. 
When a psychologist diagnosed Gigi with early-stage alcoholism, she accepted her addiction and sought help through a 12-step program. She initially struggled with feelings of shame and self-worth, but eventually she overcame her reluctance to attend meetings and eventually found a sponsor who provided crucial support. During her first year of sobriety, she attended meetings regularly, stayed in therapy and addressed her negative thinking patterns. She explored self-hypnosis and other methods to retrain her mind and cope with emotional pain. I love what Gigi said about the fact that we recover in layers, which is why we can go deeper as we move through our years of sobriety. As she went through her own layers of recovery, she addressed false beliefs and childhood trauma. She joined support groups including adult children of alcoholics and women who love too much. I also love her piece about healing in layers, which can remove the fear of therapy and doing the work, because in fact it means that we heal at a manageable pace rather than becoming overwhelmed by suppressed emotions. We agreed on the need to reconfigure our lives after six months of focusing on habit change and the fact that we can find inspiration from others further along on the recovery journey. Shishi shared the journey of writing her two books with us. They're called 50 Ways to Worry Less and Love More Now. She kindly offered PDFs to anyone struggling financially. So go to her website, which is gigilongo.com. I will put it in the show notes. We both recognize the role of vulnerability and courage during the healing process and stress the importance of seeking help and reaching out for support. So if you want to get some support from Tribe Sober, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. And if you'd like to try us out before committing yourself, just join our free five-day boot camp, which starts on February the 12th. Go to tribesober.com and you'll see the sign-up button on our homepage. Let me finish by reading out a few short testimonials of previous boot camps. I completed the January 2023 boot camp and it was the fabulous kickstart to my sobriety that I needed. Over five days, I was able to focus on key principles such as mindset and finding my whys. The lives were brilliantly timed and easy to fit into my day, and the daily readings and podcasts were perfect at reinforcing my learning. And here I am, a year later, still alcohol-free and thriving. Here's another one. I did the first boot camp after making a couple of attempts at sobriety. I was quite successful, but then I thought I'd be able to moderate... After attending the boot camp, I now understand where I was going wrong. So a quick five-day give-it-your-all recalibration was perfect. There was so much support. And another one. Alcohol has consumed most of my life, be it physically drinking, planning the next drink, or more recently, worrying about the damage it was doing. I made the call to invest five days of my life in the Tribe Sober Boot Camp in August 2022. 
It was without doubt the best decision I've ever made. In just five days, I realized why I wanted and needed to continue my life without alcohol. It's been almost eight months since I made the call, and I've been alcohol-free all the way. Here is a global community of people who understand my journey because they've all traveled a similar path. No judgment, just support, a wealth of experience and a willingness to help. So those are just some of the amazing testimonials that we've got from boot camp. So why don't you try it out for yourself? Just go to tribesober.com and sign up for our boot camp right now and I'll see you in there. So that's it from me. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.